0: St. Paul says, I beg you, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and all gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love. Making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I beg you to lead a life worthy of the gospel. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? So asks the woman in her Sunday school class. So asks the neighbor of his friend wearing the Make America Great Again hat. So asks the father of his children fighting in the backseat of the car. Can't we just all get along? You don't need to hear it from me to know that at our cores, we don't get along. We resent our neighbors for the dumbest reasons. We berate our children for raising their voices at us only after we've raised our voices at them. And we drive through town day after day with clenched fists on the steering wheels as we hear each new story through the radio. Sure, getting along in the world might be a forlorn possibility, Maybe our differences. Our differences in opinion, our polarized political proclivities, our desire to speak more than our desire to listen will always prevent unity in the world. But the church, the church should be a place of unity, right? If nothing else, can't we be the place where we just get along? This morning I left to come here, and I paid particular attention to the number of churches I passed on my way here. And do you know how many I saw? Fifteen. I passed 15 churches on my way here this morning. That alone answers the question of whether or not we can get along. This part of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, it's absolutely breathtaking. Bob did a great job reading it. One body. One spirit, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. I can hear Paul crescendoing these words in a locker room. It is the pep talk of all pep talks about what it means to be the church. But the more I read from Ephesians this week, the more I wondered, when has the church ever felt like this? I can't speak about what your experience was before I became the pastor here, but I don't know if I've ever been in a church that felt at all like what Paul describes. What Paul writes about feels more like a wedding or a giant festivity, a party that's focused on just one thing, where the great pluralities of people can come together in oneness. But the church. The church often feels like the place where we are supposed to gather for one purpose but it is our plurality that is what precisely holds us back. Because most of us, we tend to think we know best. We insist on our own way, and we are intolerant of others' quirks and weaknesses. We stand on the pedestals of our own making, looking down on just about everybody else. And even if we are tolerant of other differences, that's because we're the ones with power. Nobody wants to be tolerated We want to be loved, we want to be heard, we want to be cherished, we want to be respected. We don't want to be tolerated. You all remember the time that Jesus traveled through town and gathered everyone to hear his earth-shattering proclamation? He said, the kingdom of God has come near and the time has come for toleration. No, Jesus never says that. And neither does Paul. Paul does not say that the mission of the church is to just start tolerating each other. Paul says the church is supposed to be one. But can't we all just get along? Can't the church be the place where we are one by just being nicer to each other? There is a tremendous difference between loving one another like Jesus and just being nice. Because being nice means often being quiet. It means not calling out the behavior of others. But loving like Jesus, it usually means speaking up. It usually means calling someone out which is always easier said than done. So Paul pokes and he prods our human tendency toward division by using the word one seven times in two verses. We can all imagine this divisive energy that must have been there in Ephesus for Paul to write these words about being in unity, because those types of arguments are still happening in the church today. The sevenfold emphasis on oneness is at the heart of the great challenge we call being the church. How in the world do we find unity amidst our plurality? And unity, to be clear, is not uniformity. It doesn't mean that Jesus wants us to be a bunch of random parts that are gathered together and be sent through the factory to all look the same on our way out. No. Jesus wants us to be in unity. And we struggle with it. We struggle toward unity or around unity, and as we struggle with this unity made possible in Jesus, there's this question. Where have we dug our trenches so deep, so deep into the ground, that we will never be able to be unified? What is holding us back? Uh, The line that forms after worship, right on the edge of our narthex, is one of my favorite and my least favorite things about the church. I love getting to stand at doors and shake hands with all of you on your way out. I love to hear about what's going on in your life. I love to hear about your plans for lunch. Every once in a while, I get to hear one of you say, oh, that's my favorite hymn, or I just love that prayer. And like once in a year and a half, someone says that was a good sermon. Actually, the best thing that a pastor can ever hear is when someone says, I really heard God speak to me through. It's the best compliment a pastor can ever receive. And so sometimes I love the receiving line. I love getting to stand there and the intimacy that I get to share with you all on your way out of worship. But for as much as I like the receiving line, I also really don't like it. I really don't like it. I don't know any other profession where you have to pour out your heart and soul and then hear feedback 15 minutes later. <laughs> where I've worked all week to craft something and then all, everybody here gets to say what they thought about. It's hard to hear it sometimes. And every once in a while there's a word or a phrase or a line or a prayer or a sermon that just sets somebody off. And the hour of worship percolates that feeling inside, and someone might just explode in the narthex. So sometimes I look forward to it, and sometimes I'm terrified. Because I never know what anyone's gonna say. So a couple months ago, in this strange moment after worship in the narthex, I was watching everybody sort of mill about, and a family came up to me, a young family. They had never been to worship before. They were what we call first-time visitors. My husband and wife came forward. They introduced me to their son and their daughter, and they said all the things that they loved about our worship service. They said it was a really good sermon, and my head exploded. And they said, oh, and we just loved the way we were so welcomed by the congregation. And I was just sitting there beaming. Yeah, that's my church we talked, and we talked, and we talked, and at the end, the Father said, but one last thing. We really need to know something. We really need to know your opinion of homosexuality, and your church's opinion of homosexuality. Everything that we had just said was wiped away. But what we really need to know is what's your opinion about homosexuality, and what's your church's opinion of homosexuality. And since that conversation, I had three more with three different families that ended with the same question. And it was abundantly clear, abundantly clear, that however I answered would determine whether they'd come back next week or not. How do you feel about homosexuality? And how does your church feel about homosexuality? As it stands, the United Methodist Church believes the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. In some churches, this means that pastors like me prevent openly gay individuals and couples from becoming members of the church. It means that in some churches, people like me, pastors, refuse to baptize or offer communion to anyone who is openly gay. And it means that in all churches... Openly gay pastors were not, or openly gay individuals are not supposed to be pastors, and that pastors may not preside over same-sex unions for fear of losing their jobs. As it stands right now, the United Methodist Church believes the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. There are, though, of course, some churches within the greater denomination who ignore that language. And they do whatever they can to welcome those who are gay. And because we, as a whole church, are not united in our theological convictions about those who are gay, the church is struggling to find a way forward, who we are to be in God's kingdom? And there's kind of three camps right now. There's three groups of people in the church. There are those who want the language to remain the same, and for there to be stiffer penalties for those uh, who break the rules for those who violate the tenets of incompatibility. Maybe that group wants uniformity. And then there's another group, and they want the language to disappear completely. They want to be fully inclusive of anyone who is gay. Maybe they want uniformity too, but of a slightly different flavor. And then there are those who want to be right in the middle. They want a church where people who believe it is incompatible and people who believe it is compatible are able to sit down in the pews together to worship the living God. Maybe they just want everybody to get along. The language, the language surrounding the incompatibility of a human being in Christian teaching is strange and it is absolutely wrong. To say, to say that someone That who someone is makes them, or him or her, incompatible with what we do as the church is just simply wrong. So much of Jesus' ministry, so much of Paul's ministry too, was founded upon finding people who were told that they were out and showing them how God has brought them in. The message of Jesus is one where we are made one regardless of anything else. And the incompatibility of Christians, at least the way the language is sometimes used, is now applied to those who believe that individuals are incompatible. So of course, you've got those who will say that if you're gay, you're incompatible with the church. But then others will use other places of power and say that if you think people are incompatible, then you are incompatible. So we've got all this infighting about who gets to be in, and who are out that some people are compatible with the church and some people are incompatible with the church and all of that is wrong it is against the gospel of Jesus hear me when I say that no one no one is incompatible with Christian teaching no one perhaps better put It's actually quite strange. It's not that no one is incompatible, but that all of us are actually incompatible. Not because of our sexual orientation, but because we are sinners. We are bad people. We do things we should not do, and we leave undone things we should. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. Every one of us here. Paul starts this passage by begging us, truly begging us, to live lives worthy of the calling and we will never be worthy never ever we like paul writes are tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine we are moved by trickery we are like children we look out at whatever the other is and we are so quick to pull out the label and we say you are incompatible it's using a label that makes us the label. So here is the truth spoken in love, the hard truth. You and I, all of us, we are all broken, and we are all battered disciples. We, you and I, we are all incompatible with the one born in the manger, with the one delivered from the tomb. We have grown apart. We have ignored the call to grow into him who is the head into Christ Jesus. It is Jesus Jesus, who joins together all of our incompatibilities and knits together every ligament of our greed and our sinfulness and our judgments and builds us up in love. So hear Jesus. Hear Jesus speak to you throughout the centuries. Hear his voice in the songs we sing and the prayers we pray. He is not asking us to be nice. He is not asking us to be a little kinder, though that certainly wouldn't hurt. Jesus didn't get killed for saying we should love each other. Jesus got hung on a cross to die for calling out the sinfulness of the world, for calling out the sinfulness in you and in me. Those shouts of crucified, they came because the crowds knew that Jesus would change everything and disrupt everything that made us comfortable. Even today, Jesus speaks to us, disrupts what we think we know about who is in and who is out, because the truth the hard truth is that none of us should be in in the first place. Not one of us. And yet, in all of God's strange wisdom, at this meal, what we call the Lord's table, Christ's communion, it's offered to all. As surely as Christ is for all, as surely as all of us are not divided in Him, but all of us belong to each other. If you and me... All of us, we are sinners. All of us are poor sinners. And yet all of us are rich with God's mercy. It is our incompatibility through which God makes us one. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.